Welcome back to the South Harbor Church Podcast. South Harbor is a part of the Harbor Churches, which exist to help people find their way back to God. This week, as we continue again in our year-long study from the Gospel of Matthew, Pastor Tim brings us a message where we look at a critical juncture in Jesus' ministry, often called the Transfiguration. As always, for more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, stick around after the message. And now, let's head over to Pastor Tim. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17 this morning. Matthew 17. This is a, uh, uh, we've been in our year-long study on Matthew, kind of going verse by verse, chapter by chapter. We are now past the halfway point in Matthew, which is great. Um, This is a story known as the Transfiguration. What do we do with this story? Uh, The Transfiguration, um, I've got a lot I'm excited to share with you all today, so we're going to waste no time. Let's dive into the text, and uh, then we'll kind of, we'll play with it a little bit. Uh, Matthew 17, beginning in verse 1. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll put up three shelters, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. Let's end the story there for now. Uh, Now, can we admit that's kind of a weird story, right? I mean, it's, it's a bit odd, yes, just me. I, I, uh, so up until now, up until now, the, the, the Gospel of Matthew has had miraculous moments. Absolutely. And those may stretch us a bit, um, especially if you uh, didn't grow up in this. You hear this, you think, like, what do we do with this? Um, but by and large, the story has been accessible. But, but now Jesus is, why is Jesus glowing? Why is he glowing? Like if you're reading this and you're trying to explain to a, like a, a somebody who's never been to church before and, like, and then he glowed, they'd be like, why, why is Jesus glowing? It's been relatively accessible. There's been miracles. Of course there's been miracles. But all of those miracles, if you've noticed, they've happened in pretty accessible kind of, uh, you might even say the, the word earthy times, right? Like it's, it's people who are hurting, people who are poor, people who are sick. Uh, and Jesus shows up in these moments in really powerful, miraculous ways, but um, it's always been kind of tangible. And then you get to this story. Uh, what, what, do we, what do we do with this story? Why, Jesus, why are you glowing? Um, well, what's going on here? Uh, uh, most of the stories so far, they take place in places that I can show you on maps, right? Like the scripture, Matthew lets us know, oh, this story took place here. And, and then I, I, on Sundays with you all, we say, okay, well, where is that? Well, we know where that is. Let me show you a map. Let me show you some images of what archaeologists have discovered. Let me, uh, let me show you some charts of the other things that have happened here. Like most of the stories, like I, can, I can take you to them, at least in our imaginations. Like we can go there. Um, if I was leading a trip to Israel, I could take you on those kinds of places. But then you get to this story, and uh, this story's like not... It, all we read here is that this story takes place on a, and I quote, a high mountain. Which mountain? I don't know. 
Matthew doesn't tell us. Matthew just says it's high. And why are Moses and Elijah there? That's a weird detail in the story, right? Like you can read right past that. But if you're not familiar with the story, Moses is a famous Bible character early in the Bible. Moses, uh, Moses' story was 1,300 years ago. And Elijah's story about 900 years ago, also famous, famous person in the scriptures, he's 900 years ago. Why are there two dead dudes showing up with Jesus and then talking? It is a weird story. What do we do with this story? Why is Jesus glowing? What is going on? Uh, then, then you read that a cloud falls on the mountain and uh, a voice, which we assume is God, a voice speaks from the cloud and says some things about Jesus. And Jesus, this whole time, is going, what do we do? Now, um, if you've grown up in the church, uh, like I have, uh, you read these stories or hear these stories, and they, they don't really phase us anymore. Like, we've heard the story. It's like, okay, that's cool. That's a, it's a powerful story. But um, just put yourself, if, uh, put yourself in the shoes of your neighbor or the, your neighbor's neighbor who did not grow up in the church, and you're trying to explain this story to them. Um, up until now, again, the stories are relatively easy to explain. You talk about how Jesus loved the poor, and he... And he cured those who were ill. But how do you explain this story? It, it does have like a, like a vibe to it. Like, what do you do with this story? Um, this would be like if I was trying to convince you that Jared Heddens was the greatest guitar player on earth. And I said to you, he really is. Um, in fact, uh, and then you just kind of look at me like that, like, I don't know if I believe you. And then I said, well, no, 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 no. Like, I saw him playing on top of a mountain and he was like rock and rolling. And then you just gave me that look again. And I said, no. Then Jimi Hendrix showed up. And Jimi Hendrix said, he's pretty great. And then uh, you just kind of looked again. And I was like, no. Well, then John Lennon also showed up. And they were like chatting. And Jared's just playing. And then I heard the voice of Casey Kasem, you know, America's Top 40, <laughs> saying, this guy's great. You should listen to him. Now, you hear that and you say, that's, that's crazy. Uh, Tim, I don't, I don't think you were high up on a high mountain, but you might have been high on a mountain catch my drift. Like, what do you do with a story like this? It's, it's got a whole, like, woo vibe to it. Why? Some of you are going to get that joke later. Uh, <laughs> why is Jesus glowing? Uh, and what makes the story even weirder is not just uh, the, the like, big details. That, like, where do we put those details? But the mundane details in the story. Like, it's got, like, these giant elements that are kind of vague. Like, it's a high mountain. Moses and Elijah are there. But then you have these really mundane details. Like, why include these things? Things like, Matthew wants us to know that this story happened six days after the story that we looked at last week, the Caesarea Philippi story. Okay, why? He doesn't tell us the dates. He's not dating his story this whole time. So why does he need us to know that this one happened six days after that one? And then, why does Jesus only take three of his disciples? What are the other disciples doing? Why, why just three of the disciples? Did he leave the others behind? Uh, in Caesarea Philippi, it's from Wild City. Why just three? Uh, and then, um, I love this one. Uh, P- Peter, who's there this whole time, right? I love Peter because he just says what he's thinking. That's kind of how I, I am sometimes. Uh, Peter's there this whole time, and Peter says, and I quote, it's good for us to be here. Talk about understatement of the year, right? Like, if you're standing there and your rabbi starts glowing, and then next to your rabbi are the two most important people in the Old Testament. And they're just kind of talking. And your rabbi is glowing. And then a voice from heaven says, this is my son. Listen to him. And your response is, it's good for us to be here. Really, Peter? That's, that's your response? Uh, only he follows it up with, uh, if you want, I'll build three shelters. 
Which is like, that's a weird thing to say, Peter. That's a weird, like, what, what, why three shelters? Um, why can't they share a shelter? Right? Like, is, does Elijah and Moses, they need their own shelters? They don't, like, what's going on? Why three shelters? The whole story is just weird. And you don't get any spiritual brownie points for pretending it's not when it is. It's weird. So what do we do with this story? Now, at an even more practical level, how does this story help? That's the question I'm always trying to drill down in on when I'm uh, working on a sermon is, okay, what do I need, what here do I need to hear? Like, what's the thing in this that God needs me to see and confront in my own life? And then uh, beyond that, like, uh, what is it in this passage that um, you all, my friends, are, if you're going through some, some of you are going through some tough times, uh, what here is helpful? Something that like, you can walk away with and say, because of this, I feel like I, I can keep fighting another week for my marriage. Uh, I can push another, another day without uh, going back to the addiction. I, I have a bit of sanity knowing that I'm not the only one who's dealing with this problem in my life. Um, I get a, you get the phone call that throws everything upside down. You get the illness diagnosis. Like, uh, this passage is going to give me some strength and encouragement through that. But how does this story help real people who go through real stuff. What do we do with this story? What do we do with the transfiguration story? It's sitting in the middle of Matthew. What do we do with this story? Uh, Now, I want to suggest to you this morning, and in the time we have remaining, I want to suggest to you that the details in the story aren't random. I want to suggest to you that Peter's response, it's good for us to be here. Do you want me to build a shelter? Uh, I want to suggest to you that Peter's response isn't the single dumbest thing, the most dense thing somebody could say, that Peter's response is exactly what we expect him to say if we know the scriptures. Peter's responding exactly in the right way. Uh, Peter understands what's going on here at a level that I think I know I missed for years. Um, What's going on? I want to suggest that this story uh, isn't just a weird story that's tucked away in the middle of Matthew, But actually, Matthew intentionally puts it in the middle of Matthew. Matthew functions as a chiasm. We've studied this before. Chiasm is like a giant X, and the center of the X is the point of the story. This story and the story from last week where Peter makes the declaration that you are the son of the living God, I want to argue that Matthew puts that story here, this story in this moment. He makes sure it's at the center of his story because he needs us to see something, something about who Jesus is, but more than just something about who Jesus is, something about what it means to be human, us. Uh, that is actually profoundly helpful, um, no matter what you're going through. I think uh, my hope is that you see that this is actually really, really helpful. Now, um, the, uh, this is the story that we call the transfiguration. What do we do with this story? Uh, if it's okay with you, I got some time today. Uh, if it's okay with you, I want to... F- fully Bible nerd out on you as best I can for a little bit. I want to share with you some stuff. Um, and I know it's okay with you because I, I've heard that that's kind of the reputation we've got as a church is that that's what we do. So uh, we're going to do a little bit of Bible nerd out and I want to show you some things, try to put the story back together and then we'll try to make some sense of it for our lives. But I want to take, and I promise you I, I, what I've recognized is I, my sermons have been getting longer. So I'm going to try to taper that back. Um, but we're going to spend a little bit of time uh, dealing with the story. What is the story that we call the transfiguration, how do we read this thing? Um, Let's start with the details. Uh, Though they may feel random, the details, I believe, clue us into what is going on in the story. So again, the details. First, 
Uh, by the way, see if you can, as I give you these details, see if these details remind you of any other story in your Bible. Okay, so Peter hears the details and he thinks he knows the story. Let's see if we can get the story. Uh, tell me if these details remind you of another story. First, we have a high mountain. We have a high mountain. Uh, then we have three people who go to this mountain with their leader. Third detail, the journey takes six days. That, that's something, uh, the, the number six is a big deal. That, that's something that Matthew needs you to know. Why? Uh, then we read that a cloud covers the mountain. And then uh, the cloud is God's presence settling on the mountain. Uh, then we read that uh, the, the, the presence of God changes someone's appearance. Where else have we heard this story? Uh, then we read that from the cloud, God speaks. Then we read that the entire nation, by the way, when this whole thing is going on, the entire nation has lost the plot. They're worshiping false gods or idols. Remember the story from last week? All the pan stuff. What other story sounds a lot like this story? Ah, then following it all is the request of, should we build a shelter? What other story includes those nine details? Does anyone know? One million harbor points. Yes, if you said Moses or the Exodus, we would accept as well. Uh, the same story. By the way, they, they're worth nothing, redeemable nowhere. But um, <laughs> these are the exact details, exact details that are given in the Moses story that happens years earlier. Uh, the exact details. It's as though Matthew needs you to, to read this story or to hear this story and go back to the Moses story. Let me take you back there, and then we'll try to figure out why he needs us to do this. Uh, it's in Exodus 24. Exodus 24. We'll start in verse 1. The Lord, then the Lord, Yahweh, said to Moses, Moshe, Yahweh said to Moshe, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. You are to worship at a distance, but Moses alone is to approach the Lord. The others must not come near and the people may not come up with him. Then jumping down to verse 15, when Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days, the cloud covered the mountain, and on the seventh day, the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. To the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. Then Moses entered the cloud as he went up on the mountain. And he stayed on the mountain for 40 days and for 40 nights. He's given the law, and now he's going to come back down, Exodus 34. Exodus 34. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the covenant law, Ten Commandments, we would say, uh, in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. When Aaron... And all the Israelites saw Moses. His face was radiant. He's glowing. Uh, and they were afraid to come near him. And if you keep reading, Moses is going to put a veil on his face to not freak the people out. Okay, let's go back to Matthew. Are those details in Matthew? Um, do we have, where's my list? Do we have a high mountain in Exodus? Yes. Do we have three people with their leader? Yeah, yeah, three people with their leader. Do we have a journey that takes six days? Or is there a six, reference to six days on a mountain? Yeah. Uh, is there a cloud that covers the mountain? 
Is God's presence settling on the mountain? Yes. Is someone's, does someone's appearance change? Yes. Uh, does God speak? Yes. Duh, is the nation worshiping idols? We skipped that part, but in between this whole section is the golden calf story, right? Yes. Uh, and then the request to build a shelter. By the way, do you know what story comes after this story? So when Peter says, should we build you a shelter? You know what story comes right after this story? The tabernacle. The word shelter here is best translated tabernacle. Should we build three tabernacles? The story in your scriptures, and it's the bulk of Exodus, is going to tell the story of the tabernacle. It's, and by the way, uh, this, this story, so if you're Peter, but if you're Peter, okay, and you see this whole thing playing out, and you say, it's good for us to be here. Should we build you a, a tabernacle? Should we build three tabernacles? We want to laugh and say, silly Peter, look at you saying dumb things all the time. Like, that's how we, but you, you got to wonder if Peter, I got a friend uh, who's uh, part of the, our GTI tour team who, who will say, like, you have to wonder if the reason Peter is standing at the gates is to beat up all the pastors who mocked him for, for missing something that they missed. Uh, yeah, like, it's, like, this is exactly, Peter gets it. I know this story. This story's happened. It's central to our story. This story's happened. Jesus is continuing the story in some way. Peter draws a direct line between this story and the Moses story. So, interesting. But why? Why? Um, Turns out, by the way, this isn't the only time, only story like this in our Bible that has these kinds of weird details. Uh, There's another story in our Bible. It doesn't have all all of the details, but has many of the exact same features. Um, Anyone want to venture a guess as to who this other story is centered on? Elijah, yeah. That's only like a hundred harbor points because it's a little more obvious in the story. It's <laughs> only two guys. But uh, yeah, Elijah. Uh, story's found in uh, 1 Kings 17. That's the Mount Carmel. And then if you keep continuing to 1 Kings 19, um, so there's the Mount Carmel experience. And then he's going to go off running, uh, essentially begging to die. It's a wild story. And then God's going to take him. He's going to go all the way to Mount Sinai, uh, also in your Bible referred to as Mount Horeb. Uh, and from there, God's going to appear to him. Um, won't read the whole story for the sake of time. Um, But he goes to a high mountain, Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai. God shows up. If you remember the story, it's wind and fire. And uh, and, and like, but his, he was not in the the wind and the fire. It was the still small voice of God. It's that story. Um, And then uh, God speaks. The still small voice of God speaks. Elijah responds by covering his face with a veil. And, uh, And this whole time you hear this story that Elijah keeps saying, I'm the only prophet left. They're all bowing down to the Baals, the the idols. I'm the only one left. The entire nation is rebellious. So we have two stories that have many of the same details. Peter gets it. Peter's like, I know this story and I know that story. Um, And so Moses and Elijah show up on a mountain with Jesus, a high mountain. You can draw a direct line between this story and that story. But again, I think the question, at least the question I want to ask is, okay, that's cool, but why does it matter? Like, why are these two guys showing up there? Um, why? Now, uh, the most common answer to that is that Moses represents the law, Torah. 
And Elijah is the greatest of the prophets. He represents the prophets. And so these two meet Jesus up on a mountain as a way to say to us, Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Have you heard that before, that interpretation? Yeah? I think it's right. I agree with that. I think it's the right interpretation. Um, I, I think it's actually more right than we often give it credit for. There is a, a Jewish midrash. Do you remember midrash? It's a couple months ago now. Midrash is a story told by the rabbis of, of well, they still tell these stories, um, but they predate, some of them predate Jesus. Some of them are right after Jesus. There's a huge season of midrash. Midrash is a story that the rabbis will tell to try to draw attention to a meaning in a text that we may not see if we just read the text. So if you just read a passage, uh, we may miss a point of the passage. So they'll tell a story. Often the story feels like, what are you talking about? It feels like a made-up story. But the point of that story is to draw um, some kind of a point out of the passage that you'll miss if you just kind of read the passage. There is a midrash on this particular uh, Actually, on on what the rabbis said the Messiah is going to be like. The Midrash says that essentially when the Messiah comes, all three parts of God's book will point to him. Now, um, we said law and prophets. There's a third part. Uh, You maybe heard the word Tanakh, Torah for law, T, Torah for law, N, or Nevaim for prophets, and then the last one, Ketchuvim for the writings. So like the Psalms, Ecclesiastes, the writings. Torah, the law, the prophets, and the writings. The Midrash says that when Messiah comes, how will you know Messiah is here? Well, all three parts of God's book will testify to him coming. The voice from the cloud, God on a mountain, high mountain, says, this is my son. That's a quote from Psalm 2. This is my son. He's quoted actually over the baptism moment too. This is my son, whom I love and am well pleased. That's from Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42 is part of the prophets. Listen to him is a quote from Deuteronomy 18, part of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. So, by the way, I love that God quotes his own book. It's kind of fun to me. Um, but, but the Midrash will say when, when the Messiah comes, all three parts of his book are going to point to the Messiah. And here you have in a single sentence, I think it's brilliant, uh, all three parts of Scripture saying this is the Messiah. Now, this is, okay, first again, again, cool, but why? Now, this is where we often stop, um, but I think there's more going on in the story. So to get at that, can I take you another layer deeper into the story? One layer deeper. Um, And this one has to do with this question, where does this story take place? Which mountain? Now, admittedly, uh, Matthew doesn't tell us which mountain. Matthew just tells us it's a high mountain. So it leaves it open to all kinds of speculations. I think the reason Matthew doesn't tell us which mountain it's on is because uh, he wants us to make sure we draw the connection between this moment and Moses and Elijah, which happens on Mount Sinai. This story doesn't happen on Mount Sinai. Um, That journey is way too far south for Jesus to have hit that in this time period. This is not a Mount Sinai story. So I think if he were to say this happens on a different mountain, all of us might lose the connection. He wants us to keep the connection. So he says it's a high mountain. But it still raises the question, which high mountain does this take place on? Um, Again, let's imagine 
you are planning a trip to Israel and you're going to take the family there or you're going to lead others there. And uh, you're going to lead others and you're, gonna, you're, you're trying to teach the life of Jesus starting in Genesis, ending in Revelation. You're trying to teach people the life of Jesus. This moment's a pretty critical moment, so you don't want to miss this moment. And you read here that it happens on a high mountain. Which mountain do you take your group to to teach the story of the transfiguration? Now, there's three main candidates that scholars will point to, and each scholar's got their case, and they'll make their case. I'll give you their case in a couple sentences. The first candidate... For the high mountain is what is known as Mount Tabor. That's Mount Tabor. It's a weird-looking mountain. Uh, Mount Tabor, here's the case. Mount Tabor's here. Uh, we are... I lost my clicker. Uh, Caesarea Philippi is kind of right where the P is on Palestine right there. Um, but Mount Tabor is about a six days journey. If you were to walk it, it's about six days. So the case is, Jesus walks for six days. He gets to Mount Tabor. It's a, it's a pretty prominent mountain. That's got to be Mount Tabor. Now, um, again, if you're reading the scriptures closely, which again, apparently we have a reputation for that's what we do. So you're part of South Harbor. That's what we do. If you read the scriptures closely, it doesn't, say, it doesn't say that they hike for six days. Notice Matthew doesn't say that. Matthew says after six days. So Matthew's assuming like there's some time. Apparently they're hanging out in Caesarea Philippi. So I don't think Mount Tabor is the strongest candidate. Um, I also think that this was a really convenient location to take uh, tourist groups. So for a long time, people said this is the location because uh, the, the location I want to suggest to you it is not accessible to tourists. But that's a side I don't know. That's unfair, maybe. Um, that's the first candidate. Second candidate is what some will say it's the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is way far south uh, by Jerusalem, just kind of outside of Jerusalem. Uh, now, the reason for this as the option is you, if you really were hustling, you could maybe get there in six days. Um, you could probably make that journey happen if you're really hustling. But uh, the, the, the reason they say the Mount of Olives is there's another story that looks a lot like the Transfiguration story called the Ascension. When Jesus ascends, a lot of the same details are present at the Ascension story. Some scholars even argue that they're the same story, and like, but, but they're, they're very similar. And so they'll say, well, that, that happened, we know from Scripture, that happens at the Mount of Olives, so this story must have happened at the Mount of Olives, and it kind of bookends each other. It's a decent candidate. I don't think it's right, though. Here's, my th- here's a third candidate that I... I, uh, lots of scholars suggest this. More and more are saying we're pretty confident it's this now, um, but we don't know for sure because Matthew doesn't tell us. But your third candidate is a mountain known as Mount Harmon. Mount Harmon. Um, that's how you pronounce it, by the way. I actually was trying to figure out where the syllable goes. Is it, is it, is, do you, do you, is it Harmon or is it Harmon? And so I looked up, how do you pronounce this mountain? And... Uh, it's Harmon, um, so the syllable's on the second. But I uh, came across this Southern Baptist pronunciation key, and I clicked it, and he goes, Herman. <laughs> it's not Herman. Uh, it's not Herman. It's not, it's not Mount Herman. Um, but you can call it Mount Herman. Uh, now, here's why we think it's, it's Mount Harmon. Let me give you four reasons. First, this is by far the highest mountain in Israel. By far the highest mountain in Israel. Uh, Mount Harmon is the only mountain in Israel that's snow-capped. 
Uh, in fact, uh, there's some skiing that happens there in the winter. Um, a lot of the snow-capped mountains will become the River Jordan uh, as the snow melts. And so it's the only snow-capped mountain. It's by far the highest mountain. If we're told it's a high mountain, you say, okay, what's a high mountain? Mount Hermon is by far the highest. I talked to my tour guide, uh, my tour guide friend, um, Ronen, about this, and I just asked him the question, like, do you think it's this one, and what, what's your best case? And he said, well... He goes, in Israel, what you learn is that people say a lot. They'll say, if, if you say the river, everyone knows you're talking about the Jordan River. And if you say the city, everyone in Israel knows you're talking about Jerusalem. And if you say the mountain, everyone in Israel says, well, that, of course, is Mount Hermon. So he's like, that for sure. Uh, that's the first reason. Second reason, uh, Caesarea Philippi uh, sits right at the base of the mountain. Again, I don't have... Oh, you can see it up there. Um, it sits right at the base of the mountain as you kind of begin the ascent. And that story happens right before this story. And again, if you read the story closely, it says that they stayed there for six days and then they hiked. So, so apparently it's close by. Um, and then uh, third, we have excavated over 20 temples to pagan gods on this mountain. Um, because all of them wanted the high, the high mountains for worship. And so we've excavated over 20 temples to pagan gods known as the Baals, these Canaanite gods. And that detail seems to square up with the Moses and Elijah story. So if you're trying to draw that connection, those seem to square up. But the fourth reason, and by far the most compelling reason to me, is Mount Hermon literally translates in Hebrew to holy mountain. Holy mountain. Now, why does that matter? I think it's a major clue. Uh, let me... Okay, there's a, there's a famous midrash. Another one. Um, this is a bonus midrash, if you're taking notes. Say midrash, bonus midrash. You came to church today thinking, church is kind of boring, and you didn't know you are getting bonus midrash. <laughs> bonus midrash. There's a midrash. It's one of my favorite midrashes uh, in the, of, of all the Jewish midrashes. Um, there's a famous midrash. If you're taking notes, it's called Midrash Shoker Tov also known as Midrash Tehillim. It's a series of, of, of stories about the Psalms. There is a part of that Midrash that is a commentary on Psalm 43. Let me read you Psalm 43, and then let me walk you through the Midrash. Psalm 43. The psalmist writes, Vindicate me, my God, and plead my cause against an unfaithful nation. Rescue me, from those who are deceitful and wicked. Do you remember what Jesus said over Caesarea Philippi last week? This is a wicked and perverse generation. Almost the same language. You are my God, my stronghold. Why have you rejected me? Why must I go, go about mourning, oppressed by my enemy? So the psalmist is in trouble and he's pleading with God. Help me, God. Where are you, God? And then this. Send me your light and your faithful care. The word faithful care in Hebrew is the word emet. Um, it's often translated truth. So send me your light and your faithful care, or your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy mountain, to the place where you dwell. What does Mount Armon mean in, in Hebrew again? Holy mountain. Now here's where the Midrash comes in. I think this is cool. This is where the Midrash comes in. The Midrash noticed that the psalmist pleads with God to send Truth. God, when I'm in trouble, I'm desperate here. Would you send me your, your light and your truth? That's the request. Now, how do you send truth if you're God? 
Well, the Midrash noticed that God has sent truth before. And the way God has sent his truth has always been through a person or people. And who is the embodiment of that truth? Well, according to, by the way, this Midrash is 80 years before Jesus. Think about that. This predates Jesus by about 80 years. The Midrash says that when the truth comes, well, who was the giver of truth the first time? Who gave us Torah? Moses. And who pleaded the cause of the nation when the rest of the world was falling on pagan temples? Elijah. God, when you're in trouble, the Midrash says, ask God to send you truth. Ask God to send you Moses and Elijah. Now, who's the light? Well, the Midrash has an answer for this. The light in the scripture is always a reference to Messiah. Always. And then the Midrash, get this, does something fascinating. It points you to the passage where Messiah is talked as the bringer of life, of light. That passage is Isaiah 42. Let me read you what Isaiah 42 says about the Messiah. The Messiah will be a light for the Gentiles to open the eyes of the blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. A light to bring light to those who sit in darkness. So Psalm 43 says, when you're in trouble, according to the Midrash, send light and truth. And who are light and truth? Well, the Midrash says, that's Moses, that's Elijah, and that's Messiah. This is the only other spot that we find up until the time of Jesus, other than the transfiguration, where Moses and Elijah and Messiah are mentioned in Jewish writing. Do you think they knew the Midrash? See, a little context helps. Catch this. Notice how Isaiah 42, this whole passage about light, notice how it begins. Isaiah 42. Here's my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom I delight. Where have you heard almost those exact words? The voice from the cloud. God's quoting this part of his book back. This is my son. I love him. Listen to him. You see what's going on in this passage? It's like, it's like uh, Matthew's helping us peel back the blinders to show us who Jesus is. He's the one you've been waiting for. He's the one you've been praying for. When you're in trouble, you've been praying that God would send you Messiah. He's here. He's the one to bring light into the darkness, the darkness of this world. He's here. Come on. Anybody else? Is it, am I the only one who's nerding out on this? I find that so powerful. And so, of course, Peter says, we got to build shelters. He knows what comes next in the story. He knows what comes next. He understands what's happening here. Now, um, it's possible that we read this and we say, yes, isn't Jesus incredible? This story tells us, it reminds us that Jesus is big. And Jesus is here when we're in times of trouble. Jesus is powerful. And often that's where we stop the story. That's where most sermons end. I'm going to go for another seven minutes. That's where most sermons end, right? We stop the story there. We stop the story and say, this story teaches us that Jesus is a fulfillment of Moses and Elijah, the prophets and the law, and Jesus is the Messiah, the one God sends. That's the point of the story. It's like you had the story before this where the declaration's made, and now you have this story where the declaration is seen. But I, th 
I think that misses the why behind the whole story. Like, why play this whole thing out? Peter already knows who Jesus is. He's already said it, right? Peter's already said, you're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. I know who you are, Jesus. That was last week's sermon, right? Like, last week, we looked at Caesarea Philippi. Peter gets it right. Why does this whole scene have to play out? Let me add one more layer to the story. Um, One more layer to the story. Feels like what Jesus is doing here isn't just revealing something about who he is. Absolutely he is. But it's not just that. It's also revealing something about humanity, about us, about you, about me, about your neighbor, about your enemies. Something that the world around Jesus, the religious leaders in particular, have forgotten or lost. Something that Jesus has said himself for 16 chapters, I'm trying to help the lost sheep of Israel. I'm trying to wake the religious establishment up to something. They're forgetting about something. They're missing something. For 16 chapters, Jesus again and again goes to the religious leaders and tries to steer them back on track. They're missing something about who humans are. Why does the Midrash suggest that Moses and Elijah are the givers of truth. They're not the only ones that, that God uses to spend, like, speak truth. There's lots of prophets. They all speak some form of God's truth. Why does the Midrash highlight Moses and Elijah? What's unique about Moses and Elijah? These are the right questions. God shows up on a high mountain. God speaks to pronounces blessing over Jesus on a high mountain, but why? Both with Moses and Elijah, same kind of details happen, but why? If you read the stories, first story, Moses. God says, I need you to come, uh, I need you to come up on this mountain. I got some laws to give you. He comes down, sees the golden calf and the dancing, and he comes back up to, to Moses goes back up on the mountain, and God meets Moses, and God says, the nation has lost the plot. You're the only one left, Moses. In fact, go tell your people. That's the language. And again and again, Moses says, no, God, they're your people. They're worth saving. They're worth not, do not give up on them, God. This is Moses. He's got chutzpah. Do not give up on them, God. I know they've missed the point. I know I saw them dancing around that golden calf. They've lost the plot. Don't give up on them, God. And then he goes on and he says, take me instead. Elijah, I'm the only prophet left. The the people are bowing to the Baals. And I'm the only one who does not bow his knee to Baal. Uh, And then there's this whole contest on on top of of Mount Carmel. And uh, then the crowds come back and they say, Yahweh, he is our God. And then the very next story, there's a hit out on Elijah's life. He runs off to the desert. He finds himself alone on Mount Sinai. And he says to God, God, I'm it. I'm the only one. But don't give up on them, God. Don't give up on them. What the Midrash points out, and the Midrash chooses the... Moses and Elijah are the two people in the scriptures who stand in the gap. You can take me, but but don't give up on them. Don't give up on them. Remember Caesarea Philippi. We were just there last week, base of the mountain. Uh, Remember Pandemonium? Panic. Pan, do you remember pan worship? It was that disgusting, like, ugh, why are you telling me this, Tim? Remember that? Like, 
totally lost in their ways, totally uh, bought, into a, a li- bought into a lie that the way you get worth and value and significance is you do despicable things. Do you remember when uh, Jesus, uh, Peter, Jesus says, who do people say that I am? And, and then Peter says, you're the son of the living God. You're Messiah. You're the one we've been waiting for. And Jesus says, you're right, and um, they're going to kill me. Remember that whole moment? And then remember what Peter says? Peter responds back with, I'm not going to let it happen. I'm not going to let you die. This is you could almost fill in the blank. Not for them. Don't die for them. Look what they're doing. Don't die for them. Why would you, why would you risk your life for them? They don't even want you. Which, by the way, is the exact same temptation that Satan gives to Jesus in the wilderness right after the baptism. Remember that story? You see why Jesus says, get behind me, Satan? Same temptation. Don't do it for them. Die for a good person, sure. But don't die for these people. They don't even want you. Take a shortcut. You can call down angels if you want. Take a shortcut. Um, Moses stood in the gap for a people who had lost the plot. And he says, I know they've missed the point. I understand what they're doing, God, but take me instead. Elijah stands in the gap and says, I know they're missing the point, but don't give up on them, God. Don't give up. Take me instead. And I think what Jesus needs these three disciples to see right here and us to see as his followers is that he joins them in standing in the gap. These people are worth it. And the religious leaders at Jesus' time have lost this. These broken, many ways depraved, Sick, like disgusting, make your stomach turn. I imagine some of those disciples have to, like they would have to go through some pretty serious trauma from what they've seen. These people are worth it. And the Pharisees have missed it. And the Zealots have missed it. And the Essenes have missed it. And the Sadducees have missed it. And the rabbis are missing it. And they're all missing it. But not you, Peter. Not you, James. Not you, John. My church is for them. Your job is to storm the gates of hell, not to conquer them, not to conquer your enemies. We got lost in that plot way too long. Your job is to storm the gates of hell to rescue them. It's always been a rescue mission. It's always been a rescue mission. It's always been a rescue mission. Why this whole moment? Peter got it, but he's not going to die for it. Not for them. I think Jesus needs him to see. You'll notice in the next story, Jesus is going to say, they're going to kill me. He's going to come back to it just to remind him, like, listen, they're worth it, but it's, this is what it's going to cost. Uh, let's move into what about us? What, about, what do we do? Um, a couple things. Uh, strikes me that uh, maybe some of you this morning, I know there's seasons in my life where I need to be reminded of this, need to be reminded that you are worth it in the eyes of our God. You are worth it that God's love extends even to the most, uh, no matter what you've done. Um, and some of us, most of us have done some pretty ugly things, and God's love extends even to you. But it's not just that you're worth it. Uh, they're worth it, whoever the they are in your life. Whoever, when you think, I can't believe they're doing that, they think that way. I can't believe they're doing those things. Whoever the they are, that you can't stand that. They, you think they got the plot all wrong, and maybe they have. They probably have. But they are worth it. 
And, and to be a follower of Jesus is that we refuse, we refuse, we refuse, we refuse to give up on them. What you'll see in Peter's life after this point is Peter, uh, he'll, he'll stumble again in his own faith, but Peter understands the mission. I have to stand with them. Um, the, the rescue mission has always been the point of the church. Uh, uh, every, every summer, um, as we approach baptism, we try to remind ourselves of, of a handful of things. The first is that um, if, for whatever reason, you've been taught to believe that you're not worth it, and now you're beginning to see, or over this last season, you begin to see, like, oh, wow, Jesus is calling me. I'm the lost sheep. He loves me. Um, we want to invite you to baptism. But it's really important, as we move closer to baptism, that we understand what baptism is and what baptism isn't. Baptism is a saying yes to Jesus, absolutely. But baptism isn't the end. It's not the end. It's not the finish line. Um, again and again, you find the call is to baptism and then change life. Baptism isn't just for or just about you. Baptism is our pledge to join him in his mission. And so uh, for those of you who... Um, would want us to make that step to join him in the rescue mission. Uh, if you haven't said yes to Jesus, if you haven't stepped into this, or maybe you just said yes intellectually, or maybe you, um, maybe you said yes to a personal Jesus as your Lord and Savior, but not a Jesus that you were going to step in and actually make some changes, we want to invite you uh, into baptism. Um, and it's a party every year. Uh, right after the service, if you're just, you can hang out right here. There's a number of others that came last week. And so there's a couple of you, if you want to hang out up here, we'd love to talk with you in about 10 minutes to answer any questions. Sound good? Okay. P.S. I got three minutes, two minutes. P.S. Um, a P.S. to the story. Uh, Jesus comes down the mountain. This whole story comes down Mount, what I believe is Mount Hermon, and he meets a man, and the man has a son, and the man's son is having seizures. The man's son is demon-possessed, we read. And the dad, who's desperate, says... This demon throws my boy, Jesus, into fire and into water. Your disciples can't help him. I brought him to your disciples. They can't do it. Jesus, I'm desperate. Would you help my boy? Jesus responds by saying to the disciples, you wicked and perverse generation. And then he explains kind of what's going on a little bit. Let me take you back to the Moses story. Moses comes down the mountain, sees the golden calf is angry. You wicked and perverse generation, he says. He then takes the calf, he burns it. He takes the dust or the remnants of that calf and he mixes it with water and he makes the people drink it. Fire and water. I think Peter gets the point. Are we being like, are we being like the Israelites, is Jesus saying we are still have to deal with the idolatry in our hearts? We'll pick up there next time. Um, several, uh, PPS, PPS. Jared is the greatest guitar player. <laughs> and um, John and Jimmy have told me. So let's show me a word of prayer. Lord, we love you. Uh, we thank you for the call that you place on our lives. Lord, we thank you that you don't keep the bar so low that we trip over it. But Lord, you continue to raise the bar um, because your view of humanity is high. Uh, Jesus, I pray for everyone here who right now feels as though 
Um, their life isn't worth it. They're not worth dying for. They're not worth saving. Lord, I pray that uh, in a way my words can't do this morning, Lord, your spirit would meet them and remind them of who they are. And then, Lord, for every single one of us who have said yes to you, would you remind us of the mission? Lord, we confess that there are many times we think things about your creation that um, are pretty disgusting. Lord, we think things about other people. We call them names, either at least in our hearts, if not out loud. Lord, we call them names. Um, we call people that you died for things that um, are pretty bad. Lord, we confess that. Would you help us to see the rescue mission? Lord, help us to get involved in the rescue mission uh, that you call your church. Jesus, we love you, and we pray this in your name. And everybody said, amen. As we've said so many times before, we just want to say thanks for spending a little time with us. For more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, visit us on the web at www.southharbor.org. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at South Harbor Church. And on Sundays at 10 a.m., you can find our services streamed live on our Facebook page. And so once again, from all of us here at South Harbor Church and the Harbor Churches, we want to wish you a blessed week.